So today, we're going to continue our conversation on the parables of Jesus. And today we're talking about the parable of the weeds. And you know, I continue to be amazed at how God intertwines his word. Um, in our Wednesday class, where we we're finishing up this week on the creation study, and we made mention of this last week, and on, on, on last Wednesday, of how God is just amazing and on the a level of detail that he brings to everything he does. You know, the way he created life, the order that in which he created it, and the long-term perspectives that he has in all of it. I mean, it's just clear that God is an amazing, amazingly organized God. <laughs> and he just has so much good in store for all of us. It's just really, really good. And that's what we find as we study the parables. Now, this reminds me of my short-sightedness because a number of weeks ago, when we studied the Beatitudes, I made mention that, well, this will be a little short, little quick, easy series, sermon series. It'll be one that'll just kind of be, kind of roll off the tongue. It'll be easy. It won't have much depth to it. I mean, that's just the Beatitudes. Come on, what can that be? And then I thought, as we got into it, oh my gosh, what was I missing all these years by not studying the Beatitudes earlier? And now I'm thinking the same thing about the parables of Jesus. I mean, the depth of his wisdom and knowledge, when we study and invite the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives to understand the, the meanings of what Jesus is teaching, it's absolutely powerful. And so I'm excited about what we're, hear, what we're hearing and learning as we have ears to hear what these parables are indeed saying to us. <clears throat> Excuse me a second, I need to take a drink of water. As we continue to dig into the parables, something else that I find interesting is that they bring conviction. They bring conviction to my heart before they bring, bring conviction to yours because I study them before you hear them, at least in our sermons. I would ex ask you, as I'm asking myself the question, what do I do with conviction? What do I do when the Holy Spirit brings conviction into my heart? It's very easy to change the channel. It's very easy to run away from it. I can remember as a kid growing up and hearing convicting sermons. And when I wasn't ready to deal with them, I couldn't wait to run out the door of the church because I knew that I wouldn't be convicted in the parking lot. But I was convicted in here. And so I just wonder, wherever and whenever, it's not if, but the Holy Spirit will, he wants to, that's his purpose, to bring conviction to your heart. Now you can, many, you could be, um, you could misunderstand the conviction as condemnation, and you could misunderstand the conviction as something that's not good for you. But let me just assure you that if you ever feel, when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, it's for your good. It's for your benefit. He will never convict you of something that is not good for you to change. So what do you do with the conviction? Do you welcome it? Do you jump into it with both feet and say, okay, God, wash my feet. Cleanse me. Change me? Or do I look for ways to justify my behaviors? It's a good question, isn't it? And I think we need to recognize what that means. Do not be insulted. Don't feel um, that the preacher's talking about you. No, the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you. There's a big difference. So welcome it. So anyway, as we look into the parables this week, we're going to be talking about the parable of the weeds. This particular parable is interesting in that it gives us great insight and instructions on how we live our daily life. I mean, that's one of the first things that Jesus is trying to get to us. And how do we live victoriously in the life that we're living in and how to be godly and to be Christ-like? At the same time, this parable and most of his other parables also has a double meaning because it speaks prophetically of what's happening, what's going to be happening in the end times, which what we're in today. 
very, very clearly we are in the end days. And I can promise you that we are closer today than we were yesterday. That's a fact. And and we're going to be closer tomorrow than what we are today. So we need to be preparing our hearts that way. So Jesus is talking to us in this parable, which we're going to get into, about what it's going to be like at the end of time. Jesus is prophesying to these events that are, ha- that are going to happen just prior to his second coming, which is not the rapture. The rapture of the church comes before the second coming. The rapture of the church is an is a event that happens for the church where we are taken out of this world instantaneously, quietly to the world, but with a great sound of what a great trumpet blast to the Christians, then those that are dead in Christ will rise first, and those that are left, us alive, will rise with them to meet Jesus in the air. And he will never touch down at that time. He will be in the clouds, and we will meet him in the clouds. The second coming is another event where Jesus is actually coming again to earth where he touches down, he touches his feet on the Mount of Olives, and then great things happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And Jesus is talking about that at the end of this parable, which we're going to get into a little bit more later. So let's talk about the parable. Matthew chapter 13. You can open your Bible, um, or you can read on the screen. I invite you to open a Bible, bring a Bible if you have one. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. The parable says this. Jesus told them, Another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Verse 28. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, well, do you want us to go out then and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Let's pray. Father, help us with this interesting word picture here. What exactly are you saying to us? Lord, just give us revelation knowledge today. Open up our hearts to hear what you would have us to hear today. Take away any distraction and help us to focus in on you for the next few minutes in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, Jesus is talking about a subject everyone in that day could associate with. He's talking about a farming a farmer. He's talking about agriculture because people understood those, that terminology of that day. And this is a parable that deals with the earth and the planting of seeds, just as the one previous that we spoke about as well. Um, we've been talking about how important it is that we prepare the soil. Until the soil is prepared, the weed, I'm sorry, the seed Thank you. The seed really doesn't have any ability to germinate. If, it, if the seed is on dry ground, rocky ground, it won't settle in and it won't be able to develop roots. So if we're going to be effective in our bearing of fruit, we need to have our soil properly prepared. Today we're going to be dealing with soil and seeds and a harvest, but a little different way than maybe what we spoke about last week when we talked about, or the week before, when we talked about the, the, the parable of the sower. It still revolves around, however, the fact that if you're going to receive the parables, remember, Jesus spoke in parables of his day for only those that were truly hungry to hear. He had already been in his ministry long enough to know that there were many out there that were trying to trick him up or trip him up, or take the words that he was using and use against him later in the court of law, in the court of Jewish law. So Jesus was moving out of that phase of his ministry into the phase of parables, and the parables were designed to really be understood by those that were hungry. Does that make sense? Who are the hungry ones? Who are the hungry people? 
Well, it was disciples and it was earlier followers of the day. But who are hungry today? Who are the hungry ones that the parables are settling into their lives today? It reminds me, I, I, I use this little example because it illustrates something to me. Now, the last couple of weekends, Chris and I have been fortunate enough to go down on Thursday nights and then spend a day or so with our um, twin granddaughters. And uh, they're about a year and a half now. And man, are they cute. I'm telling you what, uh, they are the cutest things in the world. Uh, they just got grandpa right, wrapped around his thumb, no question about it. Or their thumb, put it that way, their finger, whatever that goes. But, you know, here's one thing, though, that I'm understanding. Every time we go and see them, I see a change. You know, we went down Friday, and they seemed heavier this week than they did last week. I, I, and, and every time they say new words, they're starting to see Mimi. They've been saying grandpa a long time. They're just starting to see Mimi. Just starting to say it, right, Chris? But they're, but they're saying grandpa. But anyway, but what we're also understanding and seeing is that these little girls eat all kinds of food. I mean, they eat a lot. And our, our Aubrey and David, they're not feeding them baby food. They're feeding them adult food. And um, I'm just amazed at these girls' appetite. And they love raspberries. They love bananas. They just love food. And it's obvious now that when their appetite is good, that's an indicator that there's life. This past week, we went down and they had some sniffles. They had, they had some, a little cold and runny noses and stuff. And, and as a result, their appetite wasn't as strong this week as it was last week because they weren't feeling so good. So that was an indicator that maybe something's not quite right with them because they're not just going after the food like they were before. All right, so what does that have to do with us? Other than the fact that I get to talk about my granddaughters and my grandchildren. I have four other grandchildren that are just as good as these, just so you know that. So um, I'm not at all picking favorites here. They're just the ones of the example. But this is an indicator for us, though, as Christians, as Christians, as followers of Christ, I'm praying that we have an appetite. If the, if the parables are going to mean anything to you, then you need to have a spiritual appetite. You need to be hungry for the word of God. And if you're not hungry for the word of God, that should be an indicator that something's not right. Maybe you have a spiritual cold. Maybe you're spiritually constipated. I don't know. That was a weird one, wasn't it? I was out of the blue. But, um, but that would be an indicator that maybe something's just not quite right. And, and I'm not saying that to bring condemnation. I'm not saying that to say that, boy, if you don't have as much, as much thirst and hunger for the word as I do, then you're not right. That's not it at all. But I am hoping that you're measuring your life. We all eat different amounts at different times in our life because we have different spurts of growth. But at some point in time, though, you should be experiencing a spiritual hunger and if you're, not, if you're not experiencing that at all, then just take note of it, right? I mean, if, you're not, if, you, if you don't want to read God's word, then ask why. Ask yourself, why don't I want to read it? Why don't I want to pray? You know, I've heard people say that I can pray and get all my praying done in about 10 minutes. And then I'm done. Okay, and I could measure my time that too because it would take me about 10 minutes to say everything I wanted to say. But the reality is that's not really what God is intending. God really wants fellowship. He wants prayer time to be a lingering time that maybe you don't talk. (laughs) Maybe you just sit and listen because maybe he has some things he wants to say to you. And maybe the things that he wants to say to you are going to take more than 10 minutes. Right, And so I just think that we need to prepare our hearts, even in our personal devotion, that we just go and say, okay, God, I'm just going to carve out some time here. And sometimes it is 15 minutes. I get it. Because that's all you have. Maybe sometimes it's an hour. I don't know. But I'm just asking, I'm challenging all of us to measure ourselves based upon our hunger for the Lord. How much time do we want to spend with him? Does that make sense? Am I beating that one to death? If I am, that's okay. Because it's one of those things that it just has to become part of our life. So let's go back to the parable. And let's read now the explanation 
of what Jesus was saying to, the, to these disciples in this prayer, but because the disciples were a little bit confused. They didn't know exactly where Jesus was coming from here. So Matthew chapter 13, skipping down to verse 36, Jesus begins to describe the parable to them. It says, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus answered, the one who sowed the seed, the good seed, is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will, be thro- they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So I'm going to jump back and forth now between verses 24 and 30 and 36 and 43 um, as we go forward, just so you know. Okay, so going back now, let's talk about what Jesus is describing. In Matthew 13, 24 and 25, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone is sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So the kingdom of heaven here indicates that we are on a spiritual journey. We are on a journey in our life. We are not, we are... We are part of the kingdom of heaven, but we're not in the kingdom of heaven yet. We're still in the realm of earth, right? We're still in Satan's domain yet. We're not there. So we're on a journey. And what Jesus is saying now, he's given them a physical analogy to help them in their spiritual journey. So let's define some of the terms of the parable. The man represents the son of man or Jesus in this parable. Okay, go back. If you want to read, go back up to verse 24. You can see this. The field represents the world full of people. And these are both good and evil people. All right, it's the world. The good seed represents the people in the world that have, that have accepted Christ and that are living faithfully to his word. All right, so that's who these people are. But while everyone was in the world, while, every, while the world was asleep, the field was asleep, the enemy was at work. Boy, there's a lot of truth there. Okay, so further, further definitions of verse, 10, of verse 25, the enemy represents none other than Satan himself. All right, that's who the enemy is. Satan is coming into God's field, who is the world, and sowing seeds that produce weeds. By definition, God plants good seeds. Satan plants bad seeds. There's nothing that Satan plants that's good. Let's just understand that. He is not your friend, and he never will be. Everything he plants is bad. Weeds represent the evil people with evil intentions. These weeds are not nutritional. And they consume all the good things the garden would produce that would rather be being produced in the good fruit that would produce, that would be a fruit bearing these weeds only take up space they're good for nothing the wheat represents good people that god has planted and they are identified as being a plant that is good for nutrition and good and valuable because god will gather them and take them into his barn where the weeds are gathered and burned up there's a difference here right both kinds of seeds are planted, one by Jesus or one by God and one by the enemy. And then the farmer or the people, the world goes to sleep and then these germinate together. They grow together. And that's a really important point that we're going to talk about as we go through this. Matthew thirteen twenty six and 27 says, When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? Good question. I mean, it's, it's, it's an obvious question. 
What's obvious or what's interesting here is that neither one was identifiable in seed form. I don't think you can identify a seed. I'm not a farmer. I don't know enough about agriculture. Maybe a corn seed is different than a carrot seed. But when you get into some seeds, I don't think you can tell the difference by looking at the seed what the plant is, can you? Now, a kernel of corn, obviously, you can tell the difference than a spud of potato. I get that. But other than smaller plants, I don't know that you can tell the difference. So I think they have to be planted in, in the ground and, and not tell after a period of time when they start to grow, can you begin to identify what they are? And I think th- what's important about that is kind of what Pastor Rip said at the beginning in his prayer time is that we walk in a contaminated world and our feet get dirty because we're walking among the weeds. We're walking among a garden that is full of bad things. Even though God created this garden to be perfect, the enemy has come in and twisted it around. So it takes time for a weed to, to be identified as a weed. They grow together, but, no, but, but make no mistake about it, however. The true character of a person will be revealed. You can't hide for long. Eventually, you're going to be found out. So the owner's servants come to him and ask a very obvious question. Why are there weeds in the garden? That's a good question. I mean, we know that God practices what he preaches, right? I may not. A lot of other preachers may not practice what they preach. I might try to, but I don't. But God always practices what he preaches. So God understands the importance of good soil. So we got to know that God prepared the soil to plant the seed. If he's going to be the owner of the field, we know that he's done everything right to plant the seed in a good prepared soil, right? And because God's the owner of that field, we know that uh, without doubt, he's done his good job there and done everything right. We also know that God would only plant good seed. He wouldn't plant bad seed because he can't. So to the workers... This was a big point to them because they said, well, God, we know who you are because we know that you are a good farmer and that you know how to prepare the soil and that you only plant good seed. Then why are there weeds in the field? It's not normal. And isn't it just that way with God? That everything God creates is perfect. We are studying that and our creation study, which has been very exciting and very educational, yet the enemy is at work, and given enough time, he always messes up God's plans. He always will get in and be a a distraction. He'll always come in and he'll cause problems. That's why, even though God produces good fruit, he plants good seed, he does everything perfectly, Yet we always see perceived failures in the church. We see perceived failures in people's lives. But these perceived failures, let me just say this, they're not God's fault. He didn't do it. He didn't cause it. He sows good seed in good soil. So where do the failures and the problems come from? You know, maybe you've asked questions. Maybe you've heard people ask questions like this. If God is so good, then why do bad things happen to good people? If God is so good, why do bad people prosper? If God is so good, why is there so many problems in the world? Why do people suffer injustice? Why do innocent people suffer? You've heard these kind of questions before. Maybe you have others. This parable is going to talk to us about that. This parable is going to give us some indicators of why these things happen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 28. To the question that the disciples asked, or the the gardeners asked, where did the seeds come from? Why was there weeds in in the field? Jesus answers the question in verse 28. He says, an enemy did this. Now, I I find it very interesting that God knew exactly who planted the weeds. There's no question in his mind. The enemy did it. And he's not upset about it. I mean, 
In a world that we live in today, we may think that God is out of control, that God's not doing a good job because of all the problems in this world. But can I just assure you that God's in total control? That God knows exactly what's going on? He knew the enemy was going to plant the seed. And he knew while the world was sleeping what the enemy was doing. So there's nothing surprising to God. So as a children of God, as we've identified who we are today, let us not be surprised. Let us take comfort knowing that God is in control of everything that's going on, even in a life of the world that's not good. That doesn't mean we don't pray about it. That doesn't mean that we don't get in and try to change it. We do. We go in and do the things that we can change. We do the things we need to do. We pray for the people that are hurting. We do the things that, are supposed to, that we're supposed to do. We pray for our leaders. We do all that. But let's not panic. Let's not get our undies in a bunch here and, and go running around saying that the sky's falling when it's not. We know that God is in control of everything. God knows that the enemy is doing things that he's not approving of, but he's not surprised by it. So what is the enemy's mission? What's the mission of the enemy? Well, very simply, it's to counteract the truth of God and to turn people away from him. Let's just not overthink this. Let's keep it basic and simple. And don't be confused at his tactics. Satan and all his temptations are out to confuse you. And to turn you away from God. That's his mission. And how he does it is as various as there are people in the world. He doesn't set on one particular strategy, but his strategy is always deception. And it's always a way to bring confusion into the world. He will confuse you differently than, than he confuses me possibly, but that's his mission. Satan and all the temptations that he would bring to your life are not your friends and they never will be. So people that would look at um, different things in life that would say, well, if I do this, then Satan will leave me alone. If I do this, then um, I'll be less of a target. Um, you no. Know, if you're a believer of, of, in Jesus and if you're a follower of Christ, you will always be a target. <laughs> There's nothing you can do to appease him. So don't worry about it. Don't play the game. Just know who you are in Christ and then be ready to stand against him. Because that's what we have to do. So how does Satan counteract the truth of God's word? How does he do it? Well, the enemy is not stupid. He's evil, yes. But stupid, no. I mean, he's a very smart adversary. He's been around for the history of time. And he's practiced on lots of people. By the time he's getting to you and me, he's practiced on millions and billions and billions of people in the past. So he knows human nature. He's very cunning about it. And he knows the children of God very well. And he has a plan to imitate God. God is out to help us. God is out to protect us. God is out to lead us in the right things of life. But Satan has a plan to destroy. So understand that there are two very different plans for your lives. And the key is that we choose. Listen, we choose which one we're going to go down. It's our choice. Two plans, our choice. God's plan is to protect, grow, and prosper. That's what he wants to do in your life. He wants to protect you. He wants to grow you. And he wants to prosper you into something good. Satan's plan is to confuse, deceive, and destroy. So now the devil and his demons are committed. And let me just tell you, they're very patient. They don't overreact either. They're very patient in using the most effective forms of lies and trickery they have to try to get into our lives. And most of the time, the enemy comes very subtly to us under the cover of questions. And the most probable, well-known example of this is given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God gave, had made. One day, he asked the woman... He didn't tell her anything. He asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Notice that he asked a question with a little agenda here. Satan didn't really want to have a conversation with Eve because he loved her and because he was concerned for her. And he wanted to make sure that she was eating the most nutritious fruit. I mean, he was not coming to her to help her. He was coming with an agenda to confuse her. 
He was coming with an agenda to bring deception into her life. And can I tell you that when you have questions about God's word, that that's the enemy, not coming in to make sure you understand it properly, not make sure that you have misunderstood God. No, he comes, if he asks questions about your, your, your conviction about God's word, he's coming in to bring deception and confusion into your life. So know the author. When you read articles, when you read things or hear things, know who's speaking to you. It's important that you don't allow yourself to be put in a situation of confusion because the author is a false prophet or a false teacher because it's rampant around the world today. So know who is talking to you. Know what information you're allowing into your life. Vet it out. Be a good discerner of what you allow into your life because Satan isn't coming to help you understand better. He's coming in to deceive you and to bring destruction and bring all kinds of confusion. So the strategy from Satan is the, is the same from the very beginning, that, that his sole purpose in having anything to do with Eve or you or I is to destroy us. And, and he comes slowly and method, methodic, methodically to twist God's word in our life, to get us to question God's authority in our life, and to get us to think that God's really not for us. Because, you know, sometimes discipline hurts, folks. Can I just say it? Sometimes discipline hurts. And we talked earlier about conviction. Sometimes we just need to know that when God disciplines us, when your father, if you had a good father, if you had an earthly father, and if you weren't behaving, and if you weren't paying attention, then he probably spanked. And spankings aren't fun. But they get my attention. Sometimes God gets our attention that way. And I understood this thing. When I, when I was spanked by my dad, my dad spanked us enough. I got it a few times. I, one thing he never said was, Mike, I don't want you to think I'm a bad dad because I'm going to spank you. So, I'm gonna ha- so I've asked a neighbor to come over to spank you. I never heard that. No, what I heard was, Mike, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you because I really don't want to do this, but I have to. And that's the way God is. You know, I think people misunderstand God's intentions sometimes because they say, well, God never does anything that's bad. Well, by definition, that's correct. But discipline is not bad. So God can be a disciplinarian. He's not going to say, Mike, I'm going to discipline you, but I don't want you to think that I'm a bad guy, so I'm going to let Satan discipline you. If Satan disciplined you, you would probably die because Satan wouldn't stop. But God knows what you can bear. So that's kind of off the topic, Libby. Sorry, I shouldn't have gone down that rabbit trail. But Satan's plans will never succeed in our lives unless, listen, this is the most important point, unless we choose to let him. We have authority over Satan in our identity in Jesus Christ that his plans will never succeed unless we allow him in. So important. So we need to be aware that he will also use influential people to bring the false messages of God. And, and you know, um, the Bible is full of warnings for us to watch out for false teachers and prophets. We've talked about that in the past, and we'll talk about that more in the future. But we just need to know, we need to protect ourselves. We need to be aware of the information that's allowed to be put into our garden. So let's go back into the parable uh, Matthew 13, verse 28, the the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull up the weeds? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both go together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So the servants asked a very obvious question because we, when we garden, we keep weeds out of the garden for the most part, right? But the owner here sees this a little differently because he sees that if the plants are growing together, that if I uproot the weed, he, I may very well uproot the wheat. And he's saying, no, let them grow together and I'll take care of it later. I'll take care of it. And so that's interesting. Because what does that say to us today? Here's what we're living in today. We're living in a world that is full of godly people that are faithful and growing according to the word of God. 
I love that. I love to be around godly people. Would I have coffee with a man or, or, or a guy? I'd love to talk about godly things. All right, that's just, that's just, I love that. At the same time, there are those in the world that are hypocrites, that are posers, that profess Christ, yet live a life that's all about themselves. And we also are living around a, false, a, uh, a world of false teachers and false prophets that are purposely leading people astray for whatever selfish gain they can get out, right? We know that. So we're surrounded at all times by good and bad influences. But God knows this as well, and he gives us instructions and warnings on how involved we are to be in the worldly system. We're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We are to get our feet dirty, but we come in on Sunday mornings or come in to Bible studies or even coming in with other brothers and sisters in our prayer time and our Bible studies together and we wash each other's feet. That's good. That's a great word, Pastor Rip. First John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, it says it this way. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The New Living Translation says it this way, which I really like. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and in our possessions. How real is that? How how, how much of a temptation is that? Both translations are saying the same things, that we're to avoid seeking the pleasures and the satisfaction of the world at the expense of living a sold-out life for God. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy life. That's not saying that. You can enjoy your life. You can enjoy a vacation. You can enjoy the pleasures that God gives you. You can enjoy the, the, the fruit of this world. But just don't make it at the expense of God. Don't put that in place of God. Don't let that become the mini God of your life or an idol in your life. That's what that's saying. So now I want to take the next few minutes and I want to move now from living for today because this parable has given us good information on how we live for today, how we live amongst the weeds, right? How we are to keep ourselves separated from the world, yet live in the world. And part of that is being evangelist in the world, that we're to um, invite our friends to Bible studies in the church and we're to uh, have good godly discussions with those that maybe not believe in Christ. That's part of you know sharing the good news. We're to do that. But he also wants to give us some information about the end time message. And that's where this parable goes next. Matthew chapter 13, verse, at verse 40, he says, this is the explanation. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he ends, with, he ends it this way. Whoever has ears, in other words, this is for all men, all women. Whoever has ears, let him hear. We are responsible to open up our ears. And we're to ask the Holy Spirit to open up our spiritual ears so we hear what you're saying in this. This here is describing the judgment that's coming at the end of the tribulation when Jesus is coming, as we've already described, as his second coming. The first time he came, he came as a baby, right? He walked in the world for 33 plus years, and then he died, resurrected, and was transcended back into heaven. He's going to come in a rapture format, but that's going to be just for the church and for believers. That's going to be invisible to the world. The world will not know that he has come other than the fact that all the believers are gone. And then will, the world will then spin out of control after that with the tribulation. And then after seven years of tribulation, he comes back again for the second coming where he comes physically again to the world and all the world will see him at that time. All the world will know that he, who he is. And he's coming not as a baby, but he's coming as a conquering king. He's coming on a white horse. The Lord of Lord and and King of Kings will be emblazoned on his thigh and he's going to come with a sharp sword out of his mouth and he's going to come to destroy the wicked. That's what the tribulation process is. That seven years is is the pouring out of God's wrath. 
And then the second coming finishes that. And at that time, he's talking about this is where the weeds will be pulled up from the wheat. Recognize that when the rapture of the church happens, there are no Christians left on the earth. There are no Christians left on the earth at the rapture because all that are believers are taken to heaven. So there's going to be a, a new harvest that's going to be created through the tribulation. The 144,000 Jewish believers, they're going to go out and they're going to be preaching the gospel. And there will be those here that will have known and they've missed it. And there will be converts in the tribulation. But let me just tell you, you don't want to be one of them. No, you want, to be a, you want to be a convert right now that goes to heaven in the rapture. You don't want to be one of those in the tribulation. However, that's the, that's the least, I mean, that's the second best. <laughs> At least they're going to be in heaven. However, the, 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 the one that's saved in the tribulation are, will probably be martyred. Probably you'll die for your faith. So just recognize how horrible it's going to be. But at least there's a glimmer of hope. There will be some, obviously, that will survive the whole tribulation, as difficult as it is to imagine when you realize, really recognize what the judgments are going to be coming to the earth. There will be a few believers that will make it to the end, and those are the wheat that Jesus is talking about. The weeds here are those that, are those that have rejected Christ, and they will be gathered first, bound up, and destroyed into the lake of fire. Whereas the wheat then are going to be gathered up by the angels and they're going to be gone. They're going to be taken into his barn or into heaven. And it's going to be a good thing. So that's what Jesus is talking about here in the, the end of this parable, that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's the wheat. And again, there's hope for those that it's a slim hope, but there's hope for those that that are in the tribulation period. And and I just say, that's why we need to talk about it. That's why we need to be aware of it today because we don't want to be one of them. We want to, we want to go and we want to be part of the bride of Christ that is celebrating uh, the seven year wedding feast during the tribulation. Jackie, would you come please? I know this parable really includes a lot of information and I know it's, it's maybe hard to hear sometimes, but there's some things we need to take away from it. We need to recognize that we're living in a world that's owned by Satan, even though Christ has already defeated him by his death and his resurrection, that Satan still, bless you, that Satan has a temporary domain here in this world. And God is not surprised by anything that Satan is doing. And again, I think we need to recognize the fact that God has given us the ability to stand the test of time against Satan. We're in this world. He's not taking us out of this world prematurely. He's allowing us to walk with the weeds so that we can convert the weeds into wheat. I don't know how. That's a supernatural process that I can't do, but the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can take a weed seed and make it a wheat seed. And we just have to be part of that process. We have to be there to plant the seed. We have to be there to be helping. But that's not, it's the Holy Spirit's job. I also want you to know that Satan and God are not equals. They may be adversaries, but they're not of the same power. Satan is nothing more than a created being that God created, and he's going to suffer an uh, eternal wrath of God in the eternal lake of fire. So they're not equal adversaries. So don't be fooled by him. And don't let his message of deception have any influence in our lives. We do have work to do. We're not alone in the process. God is faithful, and God is the ultimate judge. Galatians 6, 7 through 10 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. There's good news. In verse 9, Let us not become weary then in well-doing. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. My encouragement is, stay the course. Do not give up. Do not get weary in well-doing. And then verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Our responsibility today is love each other, spend time with each other, do good in the world around us. Even though we're walking with evil people, 
Love them. Do your best to love them. Do your best to reach out to them. Do your best to bring them into the kingdom. So the question that I have for us as we study these parables of Jesus is what are we going to do with this truth? What are we going to do with it? Are we going to prepare our hearts? Are we going to prepare the soil to hear God's word? Are we going to take the action to plant the seeds? What are we going to do? This is the challenge. Are we going to tend our garden and protect it from the, from the attacks of the enemy? Know he's coming for you. Know that you're targeted. I don't say that to make you afraid. I say that to make you prepared. Know that he's coming, but that's okay. 1 John 4, 4 says, But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. So yeah, you have a challenge. And your choice is, what are you going to do with it? But recognize that God is greater than he that is in the world. Amen? We know that. And we can stand righteously. We can come boldly before the throne room of God as we did earlier today. And we can know that he has a plan for us that is good for us. I just pray that we have ears to hear. And that we have the will to obey. And that we'll do and we'll be the worker in the kingdom as we're supposed to be in these end days. These end days are coming quickly than maybe, more quicker than maybe we want to realize. But that's okay. Comfort each other with those words. Look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day today. We thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the parables that Jesus speaks. And God, we pray most of all that our hearts would be open to hear the word. And not just to hear it today, but God, that we would remember it and we would apply it and it would make a change in our life as the change needs to be made. And I pray, God, that we would be evangelists in the world, that we would take an active role in the lives of those around us. God, I just pray that we would be effective. I pray that we would be real and that we would truly have an impact on this world that is quietly going astray here around us today. God, we do pray for those that are going through severe tribulation right now. We do pray for those, God, that are in the throes of war. God, we do pray that you would be with them and you would protect them. And God, I pray that they would have their hearts turned to you in this. God, I pray for the church in Ukraine. I don't know much about it, but I know there's a church there. I know there's a remnant there. And I pray, Father, that they would be effective in reaching into the lives of those around them that may appear to be lost and hopeless. God, that is the most important thing we can pray for. Not necessarily to survive, but to thrive in the kingdom. So I pray, God, that your, your messengers would be emboldened and would be strengthened to go out and reach the harvest that's in Ukraine and in, in Russia and Taiwan in Iran, and all the other axis of evil in the world today, wherever it's at in China. God, we just pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. And let's just sing a song of victory. Flood with your healing.
So, Father, we just end this service the same way we started it, by knowing our identity. Our identity is in Christ today. Our identity in knowing is in knowing what house we belong in. We belong in the house of the kingdom of heaven. And, Lord, we walk this world today alongside of others. We're growing alongside of the weeds as wheat in this time. So, Father, we just declare, though, that we do the things that we're asked to do we know who we are, and we are, we're identifying with the victors. We're identifying, God, with those that are victorious over this world, and we take comfort in that. And we know your goodness is for us, and we stand in that. And we go today encouraged in our hearts, knowing that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we give you praise, and we give you glory, in Jesus' name. And everyone said with me, amen. 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 Be blessed today. Know who you are.